0: Put your money where the movement is. It's the people that make the world go round, that make the world go round. Oh, is it the money?
1: Hey, I'm Alexis. I'm community. Hey, I'm Michael. I'm capital. So something like that. We are
0: recording. Thumbs up. So we were talking all about liquidity. Imagine a world where people can lend against all these assets. Most traditional financial services institutions have no way to underwrite and lend against all sorts of alternative assets or crypto assets.
1: It's true. Can't take my board ape to J.P. Morgan Chase and have them let me uh, borrow against it.
0: Somebody's got to figure out how to be able to value that and underwrite it and appraise it. <clears throat> and maybe that'll be at some point in time, traditional art appraisers and The Goldman Sachs's JP Morgan's of the world do work with art appraisers, but we have a little while to go before we get there. But the fascinating question here is what will happen in terms of owning the customer? So will traditional financial institutions be able to figure this out? Or will it be new companies like the Coinbases of the world? People are not gonna want to sell their crypto assets, their Bitcoin, their ETH. They're gonna mostly Hold, and certainly the NFTs, and again, this gets to the point that we had talked about earlier, which for fungible assets, maybe not as important, but for non fungible assets or tokens, it's entry into a community, you're not going to sell your board ape or your crypto punk, not just because you may want to hold on to it because you expect the value to increase, but also because that is entry into a community. So instead, you're going to want to borrow against that. As a result of that, What happens? So who wins? Can traditional financial services institutions compete at all? That was actually a question that one very large financial institution asked me the other day. They were like, how do we compete in a world where something like this happens?
1: I think it's going to be very hard, very hard, because at the end of the day, you're talking about something that is much bigger than just can you offer this service? Because it's a product question. It's a technology question. And so many of these institutions don't have technologists, don't have people able to really build it. And I think this is one huge advantage Coinbase has. And obviously, I'm you know as a seed investor in Coinbase, full disclosure, still a shareholder, very long on Coinbase. The advantage you have as a product team, having that in the DNA of the org is that you can always keep shipping better and better software. And what we're talking about here is it's, it's an asset that's not protected with bank vaults and guns, maybe a little bit, but it's really protected with code. And that's a unique skill and a unique mindset and a unique approach. And all that stuff is, it's, it's either built into the DNA of the org or it's not.
0: So we talk about the term crypto native and a lot of people at places like Coinbase or other crypto related businesses, they either hold large amounts of crypto, maybe a large portion of their net worth is in crypto and in some cases are even getting paid in crypto because they want to and they'd rather have crypto assets. Do you think that has a bearing on the ability for companies to be able to serve the needs of what clients will want? I mean, should we be betting on Coinbase to build product that helps their clients be able to lend against those assets, do all sorts of things to manage their liquidity in the crypto world versus a traditional financial institution? Or do you think Traditional financial institutions will be able to figure that out.
1: I think they're going to have to acquire their way into figuring it out. Look at the talent wars we have right now, even building as a top tech startup, you're fighting a very difficult battle to recruit and retain talent. And and if you're a pure technology company with all the upside, with all the cultural advantages, and you're still struggling for talent, you've got the best case scenario. And so for a financial institution or any of the other incumbents, it's a massively uphill battle. So you're not bringing that talent in-house and your best case scenario acquiring it. And I do think, like, I I can't stress enough too, Michael, think of the ripple effect here. All of this user experience is going to get better and better. And it's not just my board ape that I'm not going to need to sell. It's my Serena Williams rookie card collection that's vaulted on alt. I don't need to sell it ever. And so what happens to markets when... Large amounts of of assets across many, many, many individuals on the retail side no longer have the need for liquidity. They don't need to sell. You can just hodl. Because culturally, you want to hodl. Philosophically, you want to hodl. It's an internet meme for holding long on Bitcoin originally. but Hold on for dear life. Yes. I think it was initially found on a forum as just someone fat fingering it. And then I think they retconned the hold on for dear life, which is pretty convenient. That was,
0: a very, that was a very prescient fat finger.
1: Yes, it was. And so imagine you have the cultural impetus and all the things you talked about. There's all this utility, you lose whatever. You have all this incentive to not sell. And then now we're going to have instruments that make it trivial to still get some of the upside without actually having to sell. What does that do to markets? You have this across all these alternative assets. And then even a company like a venture fund like Sequoia being able to now start playing in public markets. If you never need to sell Stripe and you don't want to sell Stripe, and you never need to sell a board ape and you don't want to sell a board ape, there are going to be sectors of the market that are so ironclad with no liquidity, no one wanting to sell, that what happens? There's still demand, the price keeps going up. Mm-hmm. And because the price keeps going up, people are even more incentivized to not sell. Everyone has their selling point. But we're going to see some dynamics that we've just never seen before. And we see glimpses of it. It's the reason Dogecoin still. okay. We should actually, every episode, just talk about the Dogecoin market cap because this is so instructive. And the
0: Shiba market cap. Shiba's at $30 billion.
1: Okay, so let's point this out, right? So Shiba Inu is the meme coin that is riding on the coattails of Dogecoin. It's another dog themed. The the Doge dog is a Shiba Inu. Some enterprising person was like, great, we're going to make a Shiba Inu coin, ride the tails of that meme. Now, logically, we would expect that the market cap of Dogecoin, which is now the quote unquote boomer meme coin, to shift over to Shiba Inu. What right now is the market cap of Dogecoin? Let me look. (laughs) $34.2 billion. It, I think the last time we talked about it, it was like 30 or maybe 28.
0: It was 50. It went down to 30. But that's be partially because money's rolled into Shiba, which is now $20.9 market cap, almost 30.
1: Okay, 50 was at SNL. That was the high when Elon went on Saturday Night Live. And so it came down. And then Shiba Inu started getting traction not long thereafter. According to enough people, <laughs> there is still $34 billion of value in Dogecoin and another 20-something billion dollars of value in Shiba We've talked about it before. It is a joke. It is a satire cryptocurrency invented on Reddit to ridicule Bitcoin. And yet, it has this much value.
0: In some ways, you could argue that I'm actually borrowing this framework from somebody who is very smart, understands traditional financial services very well. But actually, in some senses, the transparency and authenticity that both of these projects have, which is they have stated they are meme coins. They've made no bones about that. That actually may, in some senses, just like Bitcoin has some level of authenticity and transparency about what it is, digital store value, I think people may believe in that asset because it stands for exactly what it says it stands for. Now, again, it could go to zero. What does it
1: take at this point? So
0: that's a great question. I don't think you can use fundamental analysis as you would with any sort of productive asset because there's no cash flows there's not necessarily a quote-unquote fundamental analysis of how you would evaluate why Doge or Shiba has value. Although you could actually say that some of these projects that are tied to Ethereum, you're also, and we talked about this before, you're long ETH if you're long Shiba. So, and, and there are people who probably hold a lot of ETH who also hold a lot of Shiba. So there's frameworks to do it. But and this is where I think it'll be an interesting question for both retail and individual investors, as well as institutions: is how do you operate in a market where you don't necessarily have the same frameworks for decision making that you had before, and you have a lot of other factors? Maybe the answer is something that you said on the last podcast, which is spending time and Reddit and Discord. That's the primary research and understanding the community is actually the way to understand why this asset may have value and understanding the energy around that community. This even applies to NFTs too. And it'll be fascinating to see if any company, whether it's traditional financial services firm or new companies, there are NFT valuation companies effectively, or companies that want to figure out how to analyze and value NFTs. It'll be interesting to see how they incorporate that into the ability to value assets, because I, I do think that's important. That's a core function of market structure evolution. You need to have the ability to analyze and get data pre-trade so that you can then have efficient price discovery. People will value things based on what they think has some sort of current value and an expected value based on a set of data that they can get. So I think that building that out will be critical, whether it's new companies, whether it's traditional financial services firms who try to figure out how to value these assets. But it's a good question because we live in a new world.
1: Dude, anyone who's tuned into this is almost by definition, not an executive in a traditional finance company. I don't think any of these CEOs are out here like degen NFT trading. (laughs) And so how does someone in that org No, I think they should be. Maybe
0: they should be. We should give credit to some of the pioneering individuals. Abby Johnson from Fidelity was mining Bitcoin back in 2014.
1: That was very shrewd. Yeah, no, she was right on. And like, okay, so there are some outliers. But today, if you're thinking about, and this is going to be a humbling thing, but if you're thinking about a strategy in this space, and you are a CEO, or you're running an org, you're probably not actually native to it. And the people who are to this very, if we agree that this is a, a thing that's here to stay, and it's a big deal, the, the folks who are, are not leaders in your org, probably. And so what do you do? Do you actually start letting them build strategies? Do you actually start letting them, like, I would, if tomorrow you put a gun to my head that said, Alexis, I'm going to give you a million dollars, and I want you to return some great multiple of it purely on NFT speculation. I, I feel fairly fluent in it, but I still have... Like other responsibilities and a family. And I, I can't be a total NFT degen as much as I might want to be. I'm hiring someone, I'm hiring a, a little army of people who are all probably in their early 20s, whose only track record lives in an ETH wallet. And that's all I care about. I literally don't care about anything else. I don't care about where they went to school. I don't care. Any, I, all I want to do is look at the, just give me your wallet address. That's basically the hiring criteria, maybe a little bit, but you know what I'm saying? That's crazy. Is there a precedent for that in finance?
0: Look, I think certain firms are more innovative than others. Certain firms have figured out how to tap into the mindset of younger generations in the past, not to go back to my former employer, but Goldman Sachs has tended to innovate time and time again. For context, they built a consumer bank. Goldman was never a consumer business. It was always an institutional business. They built a consumer bank called Marcus, and it took them one year to get to the same loan volume that it took Lending Club six years to get to on the consumer lending side.
1: That's impressive.
0: And now, sure, they have assets, they have balance sheet, they have a brand, they have a network and connections and a lot of capital to use to market and all that stuff. But I think that there are institutions that will figure this out. And there are ones who are trying to ask the hard questions. Some very innovative institutions that are trying to ask the hard questions now. Can they move really fast? I building don't know building
1: it, lending club is different. Yeah. Think of that conversation to shareholders. And we're really excited about our initiative to help bring out a bunch of NFT gens. The
0: bigger <laughs> challenge is actually how do you keep the young talent? Because they're mm, looking they're getting rich. Everything that's going on in crypto, Web3 world, even just in traditional fintech or the startup and tech world. Mm -hmm. I think they have to compete with entire movements and entire industries like the tech industry broadly, where people can go and build careers at a younger age. And in some senses, they have more autonomy, they have the ability to rise up faster. And I think Web3 is the pinnacle of that, to your point. It's literally just proof of work. Your wallet. Your activity on the blockchain.
1: Yeah. I mean, dude, that's the those are the receipts you need.
0: Which I think makes it really fascinating in terms of how do institutions think about retaining talent? How do new companies think about attracting talent? What do they have to do? And yes, I think you're right. We don't have as much time to spend in Discord and Reddit as younger people do. But that's where college kids should
1: probably (laughs) be spending their time. Oh, that's the truth. To
0: be young again, huh?
1: Yeah. Just think about it, though. To be a high school kid, to be a college kid now where you have infinite time, or at least far more time, even if you're playing video games, you're going to be making money from it, play to earn, Axie style, and everything that's to come.
0: Are Web3 gaming businesses, are they figuring out how to on-ramp many of these younger kids? And are they actually targeting or marketing to them so that those people can start to earn money at a younger age? Not yet.
1: Because right now, it's like, look, it comes back to the sort of time value of it, where in the developing world, uh, and these emerging economies, there are just way more adults who can get make good money from doing this fun activity. And frankly, the game quality right now is still just good. It's not great. But you're seeing it right now. The gaming companies are hemorrhaging talent. For folks who want to move over to Web3 now, because they can, you know, the proof is in the pudding, $100 plus in revenue a month, Axie Infinity, like you can't ignore that. And anyone who's built games at a top level knows that there's a bunch of stuff that you could do, just table stakes type game mechanics. The intricacies of how items drop and how you notify users and how you build games, that is a skill, a a well-honed skill from free to play where you developed a game model for the last 10 years where users could download a game for free, say Fortnite, and they get value playing it. They can play it with their friends. They love doing it. But then the way the game monetizes is not the initial purchase, but all the future in-game purchases. And they get really good at doing that. And so if you've been able to convince people to buy goods they don't actually own, thanks to -to free-to-play, when you take that ability and that skill and that gameplay mechanic and apply it to items they actually own, GG. I mean, that's it's so obviously where the future is headed and it's happening in the next few years. So
0: this brings up an interesting question. Just like every company became an internet company or a tech company. Mm. Do you think every company is of the mindset that they will at some point have to become a web three company? And let's unwind the tape here too. For those who are not as familiar with web three, what does that even mean? In 1995, 96 people were like, what is the internet? I feel like we need to unpack all of that because if To your point, Web2 gaming companies are hemorrhaging talent. They're going to need to figure out how to become a Web3 company.
1: Yeah. I remember when it was at first, it's like 2005, I'm starting Reddit and and the Web2 meme started and people were like, this is just a way to say like Ajax. Web2 really meant you couldn't just read content on websites. You could write content basically in real time. So you could post a comment and have it show up in real time. You could vote and it would change the score in real time and you didn't have to reload your browser. And it just created a more interactive, not just read consumption, but also write. So like content creation experience. And so web two became defined by this ability to like random people create content. And that content ended up being way more interesting than anyone ever expected. Engagement was very high, yada, yada, yada. And then Alongside that, you have mobile, which really exploded it because it now let anyone have access to a website anywhere they were, not just in front of a computer. And so in that way, yeah, I think Web3 is going to be the inevitable reality for not all businesses. There are plenty of solutions that don't necessitate a blockchain. And, and so yeah, Web3 means basically some part of the app, if not all of it is built on a database that is not centralized. So that's essentially what a blockchain is. It is a database that has a decentralized ledger that's spread across the whole Ethereum being sort of the most popular one that's like programmable. I don't think it's the solution for every future company we fund. Okay, Riverside, does Riverside need a Web3 strategy? Not yet, because they're providing amazing creator tools. But as they think about hosting content and distribution, would it make sense one day for Riverside to allow us not just to download the MP4 so that we could assume it's an MP4, the file, the video file, to then upload it to YouTube? But maybe one day I just want to mint it on a chain and have this thing exist as an asset that could be hosted anywhere where I have attribution, yada, yada, yada. Sure. But it's not like an existential threat. Is blockchain technology an existential threat to... Facebook? Sorry about my phone ringing.
0: That's the CEO of a Web2 company called
1: Right? But is, is blockchain technology an existential threat to social media platforms? Yes. Because we talked a lot about the creator economy in the last 10 years. Now, creators who are driving almost all the value to these platforms have an opportunity to capture that value. And so that's why everyone needs a strategy for it and needs to be building for it.
0: So how should people... Who are not necessarily in the tech world and are wrapped up in this day to day. I think it's easy for us to get so excited about Web three and what's going on, and for good reason. We see the power of it, what's happening. But I was at my best friend's wedding recently, and his sister and her husband are also very good friends. They're neurosurgeons, and they're sitting here wondering, okay, we're talking about Web three. They're like, what is the impact on this for me? So for somebody who's Mm. outside of the world of tech, what is the so what for them about Web3? How does it impact them?
1: So if Web1 was you could just read content on the internet, Web2 was you could read it and you could write it. Web3 is you can read, write, and own. And that is why it's so transformative. There's a generation of us, even digital natives, who have been trained to think, okay, we take a photo on the internet and... It's everywhere, so it's worthless because we get the few likes and we get some comments, but anyone can copy it, paste it, or download it. Right-click, save as. What Web3 does is it reintroduces the idea of ownership, which is such a core part to making capitalism work. It's a right to property. Even when we were founding this country, it was life, liberty, and property, and then they remixed it to pursuit of happiness. But the original was rooted in this idea of private property ownership is a really important thing, and the king can't take your shit, and neither can the president. Now, there are exceptions, of course, but like by and large, property rights are a really important part of capitalism. And so the fact that this now gets introduced to the internet, the reason why so many of us have seen The Matrix and are so giddy is because this is the highest leverage thing you could be adding to a technology that already has infinite, basically pretty cheap distribution. Social media proved that this shit goes everywhere. <laughs> you can have a publishing empire from your smartphone that reaches more people than Fox, NBC, and ABC combined. That proved to be very lucrative for people who did these sort of hacks to figure out how to capture value. But going forward, you won't need to sell merch. You won't need to sell Mr. Beast burgers. You won't need to do all these other things. You just actually will have rights to that thing that you created. And even though it can scale infinitely, you actually own it. And Where it started to click for me or rather for friends of mine in particular was with artists where I said, look, the magic here is you have a safe deposit box, which I vaguely remember from banks, but that box where you go and you have a key and only you can open it and you go to that safe deposit box. That's like your ETH address. And let's say you make some art. Let's say you make a photo. People like the photo. You sell the photo the first time. You get 10 bucks for it. That makes you feel good. But artists, historically, have been left out of every one of those secondary sales. And so if you end up making a really famous photo or a photo that people really love, it gets sold hundreds of times over, thousands of times over, however many times. And every single time after the first time, you don't make any money. Crypto fixes this. Web3 fixes this. And so where I've seen this change lives is now artists they basically have this, this safe deposit box that they can go to anytime for the rest of their lives, where when the sale happens, they go to that box and they're like, Oh, cool. There's money here. Like I forgot. I sold that thing. I created that and sold that thing for the first time five years ago, and I'm still getting paid for it. That feels good. But then when they die, they can give that key to someone else because that safe deposit box is going to collect revenue for the rest of Eternity. I mean, until <laughs> like forever. And, and when you think about how those economics now radically change art, like content creation in its sort of purest form and highest form, you realize that now great artists won't be starving. Far from it. They will be able to make a legacy that they capture, that their descendants capture. And that, that rewrites all of modern history. The story of modern history is a bunch of artists who never actually got to capture the value they created.
0: Maybe somebody else was. The louder megaphone and was able to take credit for their work and think about all the knock-on effects that that could have on someone imagine if that person actually yeah. was able to reap the benefits of the work that they did their original content that's coded on chain and then they get famous for it instead of somebody else
1: and yes people can say okay well i'm not an artist i'm never gonna make that art but that is a very pure example of why this is such a big deal and when you consider that this will be integrated in all the things that we do, having that ability to prove ownership or provenance is really, really valuable. And, and people are gonna find a way, whether it's playing a game and getting compensated for not just playing it, but investing in it. Anyone who backed a Kickstarter at some point, point, this is most people I think, well, most digital natives have probably backed a Kickstarter at this point. We all did the same thing, which is we gave money today that had real value, we could have paid rent with it. But instead, we said, "No, No, we're going to forgo that value to pay into something that we might and only might actually get something for we might actually get that movie or actually get that comic book or who knows, but we just feel good supporting the creation that we don't even care. But now you will actually get something for it. And if it turns out you were early to supporting something before anyone else did, you get to capture the upside. You get to capture the value of being early and right, just like us as investors in tech startups. And now it applies to anything. And so we're still in the most boring time for Web3. So using the Reddit example, so it was a big deal when we created, so I designed these up and down arrows for the upvotes and downvotes on Reddit. It was a big technical feat to have the click of an up arrow change a score that affected... This is 2005. This was a big deal to have it just in real time, the number change. And and let alone having comments that then were also voted on and resorted. That was 2005. When we did that on Reddit, you could not easily upload a video to the internet. Right? YouTube was just, I think it had just about launched. We take that for granted because we have smartphones, which we didn't have in 2005, that let us record a video and right now just share it on the internet to the whole world. It is trivial. It's trivial. In 2005, that was unthinkable unthinkable. And so we are now in that same era where with Web3, we just showed people that you can do real-time voting and real-time commenting. And people are like, oh, that's cool. Okay, that's nifty. But the things that we will see in the next five years will be as big or even bigger of a leap than we had to where we are now with smartphones and real-time video sharing.
0: This ties back into what we were talking about earlier about if you were given a million dollars to invest in NFT portfolio, you'd give it to the 20 year old
1: give it to the kids, DJs. right
0: who <laughs> are spending time in yeah. the discords and the reason why is because it's something that you just said which is web 3 turns everyone into an investor everyone into an owner
1: community times capital man it's a good name It's a good choice for the pod well done
0: we were thinking ahead we knew web 3 <laughs> was coming we just didn't didn't know how fast dude